Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I have been waiting patiently for this interview. I'm excited this morning to introduce you to Tom Dahlborg. Let me tell you, this gentleman is an industry voice for relationship-centered and compassionate care. He's a servant leader, and he really, really leads, not only with words and behavior, but he is a relationship-centered leader. He's an author, he's a consultant, he's an advisor, he is also a nationally recognized speaker, partner, and collaborator. Tom is so passionate about changing the healthcare system to a health caring system that I can't wait for this enriched conversation. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. I'm thrilled to be here and, and really appreciate this opportunity to share with you and your audience. Well, I joked with you before we hit record that I think you and I could, could lead a virtual one-day summit just on this topic all day, and neither of us would get exhausted talking about it. it it's so true, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. There is such greatness in the healthcare system, those flames that I, I say we need to continue to fan so they don't go out, and there's such brokenness that only together can we improve and fix and make things better for others? So I know your passion and where you come from, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. Well, I'm going to ask you some tough leadership questions because I know you can answer them well, and you and I have so many shared values and beliefs when it comes to being servant leaders. So I'm ready to dig in if you're ready. Sounds perfect. All right, my first leadership question for you, Tom, is with all the research that you've done over the years and your education and work experience, where do you think the caring in healthcare really started to decline and why? Not too long ago, I was working for the National Institute for Children's Health Quality, and uh, I was wearing a number of different hats there, everything from CFO to uh, leading strategy to also leading parent partner program. We were engaging pay, uh, parents in the care of children, ensuring that their voices and the voices of their children were being um, integrated into the quality improvement initiatives to make things better. And I remember talking to our CEO, Charlie Homa, who's a, a pediatrician, and an amazing and caring person in and of himself. And we were talking about the patient-centered medical home. And I remember asking him, because I was doing this research, just so as you noted, and I was noting that the, the um, importance of compassion, the importance of then caring within the healthcare sector, within the patient-centered medical home, which was a breakthrough movement forward, that that importance level of compassion was uh, lowered 
within the PCMH, the patient and medical home. And I said, what happened, Charlie? Why would, why would this, that something that was so important early on in the patient and medical home development and visioning be lessened as it came to market? And Charlie looked at me, he says, you know, in pediatrics, it's always about the child. It's always about the family. It's always about compassion. And it's always about marrying heart and mind to make things better. And yet, as the, the, the patient and medical home concept translated, a lot of leaders within the healthcare system found compassion and caring and those aspects of care to be um, soft. And, and, and some people see that as a negative. I actually see it as a positive. It's just, it is. It's important and it's soft, the soft side of, of our leadership. But it's still incredibly important. But because these others saw softness as weakness, they lessened it and focused more on the evidence, the more on the, the clinical evidence, I'll say. Now, a lot of people have said to me, well, we really need to do, focus on the evidence. We, everything we must do must be evidence-based, evidence-driven. And I agree in my current role. That's everything we do is evidence-driven. The challenge here is when you look at John Ioannidi's work out of Stanford as an example, and he finds that about half of the clinical research we do um, cannot be replicated so that the, quote, standard of care, the evidence that we're all relying on so wholeheartedly actually is in error in and of itself. We really need to think about, well, wait a minute. If it, Institute of Medicine said the same thing, 50% of what we do in healthcare lacks scientific evidence. So if we really think about half of what we're doing is maybe wrong and actually harmful, why are we relying so heavy on that? What we really need to do is find the evidence that is replicable, that actually does drive the, the, the right action within the clinical sector and marry it to the, the heart-centeredness, the, the compassion, the caring, and those pieces, which also with the evidence that's replicable, has a uh, significant positive impact on the well-being of those people that we're, we're blessed to care for and care about. So I think to go back to your question, it was that translational piece probably within the thir last 30 years of going from this place of it's about caring and, and, and togetherness and community to it's about the science only. And again, science and evidence is incredibly important, but science only and about uh, maximizing revenues, maximizing re uh, market share and so on and so forth. I'm, I've been a CFO. I get the financial aspect we can't lose the vision, the caring, and why we're really here in the first place. And I think in many cases, it has been lost. Well, I agree with you. And it's that whole case or care versus cure model. And you, you made some really relevant points there. I truly believe as a previous disability case manager that my best skills were the empathy and compassion that I brought. I think they're vital components of healthcare. I don't think it makes you weaker than to be kind and, and have those heart-centered leadership skills. And I think sometimes that physicians miss frequently an opportunity for empathy and compassion in patient care. And, and I know you and I are going to get into this in a little bit when we start talking about your book, but just some really, really rich comments there, Tom. And, and I agree with you wholeheartedly in it's an uphill battle, but I, I think we're climbing and making progress. And, and I do too. And um, 
there's lights within the healthcare system. These people, amazing physicians, nurses, and others. I'm blessed to be married to a nurse. And so I get to hear and see people on the front lines that, again, these, these flames of good, these lights within the system, who's in some cases, these lights are going out because we've lost the ability or that we've cho chosen to not care or to become hard, to wall off our heart and not allow people in for lots of different reasons. I know some people do it because they've been hurt and they've been burned and they're afraid. And when I think about heart-centered leadership, I think about courage. And I think about the, having the courage to care, having the courage to open our hearts and to let people in again, and having the courage to, sh to show vulnerability, having the courage to, to look in the mirror and say, I screwed up and I got to fix this and I need help. Having the courage to do the right thing, even when everyone is looking. So as an, so to, I wanna, I'd love to stay in that spot for the moment. I hear often people say, integrity is doing the right thing when no one is looking. And, and yes, I think even more so, integrity is doing the right thing when everyone is looking and what you're doing is unpopular. And we need to have the courage to bring love and heart back into healthcare so that we can enrich all those people that we lead, all those people that we serve and all those people we care for. And I think when we go, that pendulum swings too far to just the science or too far to all about the, the financial aspect of it, we lose and people get harmed. And we need to ensure that we're marrying all the above if we really wanna create that health caring system that leads to better outcomes for everybody. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, it, and it leads in nicely to my next question for you. My favorite question that all my guests get, what imperfections do you feel you bring to your heart-centered servant leadership? Wow, uh, there are so many. There was, what I'd like to focus on is that whole vulnerability aspect. And, and, and in my son, who um, I had written another book, I know we're talking about my healthcare book today. I written him another book and it was about bullying. And my son had been bullied uh, by coaches and by teachers and, 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 and peers um, to the point where um, at one point he actually put a, a noose around his neck and, and, you know, thank God he's still here with us. And what he's doing now as a 24 year old is he has his own podcast called Strength Through Vulnerability. And he talks about, again, the importance of vulnerability. And it was just yesterday, I was listening to one of his episodes and they were talking about that, that balance of vulnerability. So as a leader, we need to show we're human. And as a leader, we also have to show that we're in this and we're gonna make things happen and together we can do this. And it's that real balance around how much weakness do I show or how much uh, vulnerability do I show uh, and how much strength do I have? And I remember, some years ago, I was watching an episode of Star Trek. I happen to be a, a, a Trekkie or a Trekker. I'm not sure what it's called nowadays. Um, and in reading, and then I was reading a book called Make It So. And it was talking about Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek Next Generation. And there was an episode where he didn't know what to do. And he was afraid. And in this particular episode, the, his, his crew could read his mind and they, he could read this. And so even though he was saying the right things, we need to do X, Y, and Z they were hearing 
from him his weakness, his, his um, lack of true belief in what he was saying. And it was really fascinating to me. So I, I think that one of those weaknesses that I'm still working on is how do I ensure I bring through my own humanity and at the same time instill belief and confidence that we can achieve what we need to achieve for others? Well, that's beautiful. And, and, and I laugh, but everyone always likes to laugh at the beginning of their answer when they say, oh, there's so many. I think it's so important for us to laugh at ourselves and just focus on being a good human and evolving a little bit each day and just staying on that lane, that highway of progression. Because Perfection is non-existent, and I love leaders who lean into the vulnerability that you just so beautifully framed, and I think that's how we grow. I think that's how we learn, and I think that's how we stay in the space of being heart-centered, so I love that. Oh, thank you, and you just made me think about, um, there's a woman by the name of Juliana Wida. She's out of the United Kingdom, and she's a, a hands-on healer. Um, so she works with a lot of children with uh, physical uh, challenges and so forth. And I heard her speak not too long ago, and she talked about she she's she's she is a survivor in so many different ways. She's a survivor of domestic violence and abuse. She's a survivor from and again so many ways. And what she had said to the point you just made was, you have to laugh to to so people know this hope. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And I, again, I think it aligns with what you had just shared as well. Well, it leads again nicely into my next question. Now, we both know that all health professionals are regulated and they have an oath that they say and they commit to adhere for all patient care. How do you feel empathy could be improved within the healthcare system? I love that question because if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I'd have a totally different answer for you. So Helen Rice out of Harvard has done a lot of study on empathy and the impact and positive impact on empathy in healthcare and beyond and in life. And I was speaking with a physician leader not too long ago, a person of color. And this person said to me, you know, empathy when not used well or when used with bad intention, and I guess this could go to anything, but their specific example, can really do harm. And again, this is a person of color and the racial injustice in the world right now and the highlighting of it and the health inequities within the healthcare systems and the disparities within the healthcare system. And this person was saying to me that empathy is, in their, this is their words, empathy is me trying to, to um, understand where you're coming from, but doing it through my own lens, through my own window, which is impossible, which is impossible for me to truly understand where you're coming from. And I, I was like, wow. And, he's, and, and this person was talking about it. And, and when we start to use the empathy to manipulate, we're going to do great harm. And in fact, we are. And I'm like, and so I'm still processing this. Empathy, however, and married with compassion, to me, is what is truly missing within the healthcare system. And it's when we really think about um, the Hippocratic Oath, as an example, and it talks about, you know, the surgeon's knife is only so, is only going to do so much, but it's our ability to care for others that's really going to promote the healing that we all need. And as we know, Deb, 
some of these people we're working with, we're caring for and caring about, they're not necessarily on the healing journey, they're on the dying journey, and many of them. And we need to be there compassionately and with empathy coming from the right place to the best of our ability and married to the evidence to really help these people along their journey. We need to listen to understand where they're coming from, understand their preferences, the cultural, the culture they bring to the table. Again, we're looking at it through our lens, but to the best of our ability, we need to try to understand and empathize, but not try to say we get it all because we don't, we can't, we don't live it. We haven't been there. Yeah, I used to work with uh, in the VA a great deal, and, um, and and the stories I would hear from these soldiers, from these veterans, and uh, men and women, and and I can show compassion, but I can't empathize necessarily because I have no idea what it's like to be where they are and what they've been through, and how it's led to their health challenges and their in many ca- in some cases addictions and so forth. So I can be there and I can love and I can listen and I can share compassion and again to the best of my ability I can empathize. I just my my takeaway from that discussion was we need to be very careful with empathy and and everything that we do so that we're truly empathizing from the right place and understanding the goodness of empathy and also its limitations so we don't over have that pendulum swing so far in that direction that it that also has an adverse impact well you you've hit my heart because hospice is is near and dear to me i've been a hospice volunteer for five years so what you just so beautifully framed there, being with someone at the end of life and holding their hand brings the word being and the level of presence to something that's immeasurable. I've experienced it numerous times and it's such a gift because there are a lot of people who at the end of life are alone for whatever reason. And it's probably the proudest moment of my life where I've executed all of my heart-centered leadership and I've hardly said or did anything. I just allowed myself to be and to listen, like you said. And I think sometimes as leaders, when we really pause and embrace the power of that silence, that's where observation and, and progress is made and just so powerful the way you frame that. And and I hope our listeners really take note on what you just said about that, because I think we feel that knowledge and what we say is how we gain our leadership, how we foster our leadership, but progression can come in a nonverbal way in so many different ways when you're a servant leader. So I really love that. Uh, thank you, Deb. And you made me think about some years ago, my uh, grandmother, you know, the matriarch of our family, um, she was on her, her dying journey and she's passed now. And we visited with her um, towards the end. And I remember driving home thinking about how much better I felt. And I spoke to my bride and I spoke to my kids and they said, we always feel so good when we're with Meme and then after we were with Meme. So my, my grandmother, and I remember writing a piece um, that I think was in Hospital Impact some years ago, which is now part of Fierce Healthcare, called It's All About Love. And to, you, you nailed it. It's, it's listen, observe, visit, and engage. And it was just when we were able to love with Meme, we felt better and she felt better. And to your point, in, in hospice especially, but also throughout the healthcare system, 
when we listen, when we, I'll just say it this way, when we love, we make things better. And so again, I, I'm, I'm with you. Well, my last question is kind of fun. And uh, as I prepared for this interview, I thought, how can I not talk about this? So when I think about Dr. Hunter Doherty, who we all know famously as Patch Adams, he's had such a marvelous career. And I think about his trajectory and his story, and he jokes about it in most of his talks around the world about how he almost got kicked out of medical school. I feel that Hunter has been a pioneer for servant leadership, for heart-centered leadership, I think he's integrated compassion and empathy and all those vital components into healthcare. How do you feel medical schools have done with integrating some of those heart-centered leadership traits within the medical school curriculum? Yeah, I'm, I'm processing and so many things came to mind. One of the things that came to mind was Pam Weibel and her work around physician abuse, she calls it. And she goes back to medical schools and talks about the abuse within the medical schools. I think about the rate of physician suicide in the U.S. You know, one physician per day is committing suicide. I think about the burnout levels and the people leaving the system. And I think about how important it is that we revisit how we train doctors, how we educate doctors, how we engage doctors, how we connect with doctors. I also had the opportunity to do some work with the Gold Foundation and really about bringing humanity and compassion back into healthcare. And they go in and do work with residents. And also they moved into the nursing uh, um, area as well, which is awesome. And so I would say similar to what we said right at the beginning of our discussion, I think things are getting better. I think there's lights in there. I think there's awareness now where maybe there wasn't in the past. In the past, it was so science-driven in, in many ways. It was so about um, positioning physicians to come out, utilize the evidence. We've already talked about some of the challenges there. And then once they hit the ground running, it's about productivity and RVUs and value-based reimbursement and, and you know, um, so much as well in that space. But I think the awareness now is there that we need to bring heart and love back into healthcare. We need to go back to the Hippocratic Oath and that piece of the Hippocratic Oath where it really talks about the caring aspect. I think that the Pam Weibels and others have shown a light in these areas where there have been limitations and more and more now is being done to, through like Gold Foundation and others, to um, improve how we train, how we care for our own physicians, how we care for the carers so that, that they can be their whole selves and help others. Because when we abuse our nurses, when we abuse our physicians, when we abuse anyone within the healthcare system, they're now positioned to be lesser and we need them to be more so that they can help themselves and they can help others. Absolutely. And I, I think it's like any other element of, of education we, we learn from experience and feedback. And, and like you said, they take their different oaths and the nurses take their pledge. And at the end of the day, we're just people. And I think it's important that we embrace that ability as human beings to intrinsically validate someone else because we don't know what's going on in their life. And I think since March 11th with COVID, uh, my hat goes off to all of the frontline workers and what they've done to keep 
our world safe. And, and I know you've probably seen it with your own wife being a nurse. And we can't even imagine what they've endured during this whole global pandemic. So I fully agree with you. I think some health professionals have heart-centered leadership qualities that they do very well. Others are working on it and others haven't found it yet, but that's okay. And I think if we cannot have judgment and allow people to evolve and learn, that's kind of a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. And I love that. In fact, I worked for the Hygieia Foundation years ago and we talked about judgment versus discernment. And we really need to, this is where, again, empathy, when it's done well, we need to have empathy fall everyone working in the system and those like you said that are maybe not where we would like them to be we need to meet them where they are and then help them and support them because we need everybody to re-engage their heart or to engage their heart in addition to their brilliance and skill set and, and the around the clinical aspect if we really want to create health caring well, I'm going to switch gears and we're going to have some fun. And I like to do the second little bit of the podcast with what I call my fab four. So these are just four fun questions, whatever's sitting on the top of Tom's mind. Are you ready? Sure. All right. First question. What's your favorite childhood memory? Favorite childhood memory? I would say it was... Um, <laughs> My grandparents in Brockton, Massachusetts, and they um, sitting with them, Lawrence Welk in the background, and we were talking about um, their lives and how they raised my father, and uh, uh, sitting with them as they they drank tea and had their had their uh, cardamom braid, uh, and it was just such again that that love we talked about with Meme. This is my other grandparents just being together and. And I always remember Lawrence Welk in the background as we had these really meaningful conversations. I used to watch that show with my grandma. Isn't it funny how we all have these intertwining moments from our childhood? Lawrence Welk, I remember that well. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a time capsule for 2020, Tom. What are you going to put in it to represent this year? I'm going to put in, um, you know, I immediately went to, because you said off the top, top, stethoscope um, and a Bible. And the stethoscope is to represent all those people in in healthcare who have um, dedicated themselves and have shown up and have continued to help others under horrific circumstances in many, many cases. And the Bible is about the hope. And people talk about that hope is not a strategy, and that's true. Hope is more important. It's the foundation of all. And so it's that um, recognition of the, of the goodness with the people that have shown up every day, and it's the recognition of this, this always hope. And with hope and goodness, we can always achieve what we need to achieve. Absolutely, we can. Great answer. My third question is, what inspires you, Tom? People. Um, my son inspires me. As I mentioned earlier, he's gone through a lot in his life and now he's helping others. You know, people like you who are out there every day coaching and leading and giving voice to heart-centeredness inspires me. My bride inspires me as this amazing caring nurse who has the best laugh ever, by the way. Her laugh in and of itself brings joy to others. 
um, my daughters and what they've been through and what they continue to go through and how they show up every day. All of you know the people I work with and connect with in the healthcare system, the nurses and doctors and others who, again, under horrific circumstances in many cases, show up to try to make things better. It's these people doing things for others inspires me and helps me want to continue to just keep getting out of bed and keep showing up myself. And my last question is, what do you want your legacy to be, Tom? <laughs> I, I, people always say you, they, they, you need to think about legacy. I, I, to be honest, I have this 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 challenge with that because and, uh, I've written pieces about the gilded age of healthcare, and a lot of times what we find is you have these beautiful hospital systems and others, and these buildings are gorgeous, and they're about legacy. They're not about the people in those buildings and the heart and mind they're bringing together to help people every day. So I've always had a challenge with, I don't want my legacy to be about a big building. I, I think my legacy just wants to be that he tried to help. And I, and I think that's good enough. Absolutely. It is. What a great answer. Now I want to finish by just thanking you for your multiple decades of extensive leadership experience. You're also out there building heart-centered relationships and changing the lens on the focus to be patient in their families. I know you're empathetic and I know you're compassionate. And again, LinkedIn connected us. And what a great conversation we had that led us to our interview today. So before I let you go, I would love for you to let us know the exciting news that you've got another book coming out next week. And Give the listeners a little insight about the book and what day they can get it. And why did you follow your heart to write this book? Oh, thank you, Deb, for the opportunity to share. So the book is From Hot to Head and Back Again, A Journey Through the Healthcare System. And it really marries a journey I took as a patient, a patient that, he was, that was told to get in line for a heart transplant. Um, you'll never work again. And we get, you know, and the system gave up on me. And also through the lens of a healthcare leader, who again sees the, the flames of good we need to fan and the opportunities that only together we can make a difference. And it was some years ago, and my bride had been saying to me for a long, long time, you need to write the book. And so we put our heads together and figured out financially and otherwise how we could do so. And I uh, left my job with the National Institute of Children's, Children's Health Quality to write this book. And the intention is to help people walk away with, you know, the how-tos of building relationship-centered care. The, I want people to understand what are the key questions we need to be asking if we really want to improve the healthcare system. I, I want people to learn the importance of relationship and, and the importance of kindness. So that's that compassion and it's that empathy. And to you, one of your questions as well is, I want people to be inspired, not necessarily by my story, but more so through the other stories I share within these pages as well. And so at the end of the day, I, I want to help people re-engage their heart, marry it to their mind, and help create or move the healthcare to health caring for all. Well, that's beautiful. And we will include the link for our viewers to click on that and get themselves a copy. And 
I think when we've got heart in any title, we can't go wrong. So I just want to thank you for your wisdom and your time, your enthusiasm, your expertise, and wish you nothing but success in the future, Tom. Thank you so very much, Deb. And, and, and again, thank you for being that voice for hot-centered leadership. It's, it's, uh, it's needed so greatly, and especially now. And uh, I'm grateful for you. Well, I'm happy to join you in the, the servant leadership ring, and we, th there's more of us out there, and we'll continue to work together and find, find others to join us. I like to end my podcast with a list of five things that I believe help us live a purposeful life. Follow your heart. Have passion. Do your best. Know your truth. And always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me once again on Imperfect, the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast.